Good morning. Let's read one of the most famous stories in the Bible from Daniel chapter 3. Kids, parents, nudge your kids, make sure they're paying attention. They, good story for them to follow. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Pay attention to how many times those two words are used by the author. I think there's an implicit mockery going on here. The idea that this was set up. It's a setup. That's, the whole thing is a setup. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all their kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty, Sam. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. 
The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that, were, that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This story can't possibly have happened It can't possibly have been real. It's a quaint little children's tale, uh, but it it can't be recording to us historical fact, can it? That's what a modern reader thinks when when we read it. Um, Before we dismiss the historicity of this account, uh, does this name sound familiar? Does it ring a bell? President Sapar Murat Niyazov of Turkmenistan. I kind of doubt that it does. (laughs) He ruled the former Soviet Republic of Turkmenistan from 1985 to his death in 2006. It's a recent history. Some of the bizarre legislation he passed as a totalitarian ruler of that country included banning the use of lip syncing at public concerts because of its detrimental effects on the musical arts, Uh, Female TV news anchors were prohibited from wearing makeup because apparently Turkmenistanian women don't need any. Uh, Men were forbidden to wear bushy beards. He ordered an ice palace to be built near the capital city despite it being located in the middle of a hot desert. He renamed all of the months of the year after the members of his family. He set up literally hundreds of golden statues around his country, the most prominent of which was displayed above the Arch of Neutrality, a statue that rotated 365 degrees every, two, every 24 hours so that it would always be him standing and facing the sun. And that was only 20 years ago. Recent history And I'm sure that if we did a little digging, we would find similarly bizarre and grotesque stories about other regimes in this world, uh, North Korea, other countries in Africa. You know, history is littered with craziness. Life is crazy, especially when absolute power 
is put into the hand of one person, absolutely. So when I read Daniel chapter 3, um, I, honestly, I don't have any trouble believing that this really happened because, because human history is filled with the bizarre. Here is, though, how I think it happened. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 was just given a dream that indicated his empire was fragile. You remember that? The feet of this empiric statue that he sees in the dream were comprised of this unstable mixture of clay and iron, which he probably interpreted to somehow be communicating that there is internal disunity within his nation. Well, what better way to instill uh, unity and national pride than to create a national monument? A monument to the glory of the Babylonian Empire. It stood 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. I think that's the 60 cubits and 6 cubits respectively. So 90 by 9 is a 10 to 1 aspect ratio. Very skinny. One of the reasons we we're pretty sure this is not a, uh, a statue, a life-size statue of Nebuchadnezzar, is because it would be grotesquely disproportionate at a 10 to 1 aspect r- ratio. To give you a point of comparison, the uh, largest st- ancient statue, of, of, you know, the largest one in the ancient world was the Colossus of Rhodes. That stood 107 feet high with a base of 60 feet So this is not a statue of Nebuchadnezzar per se. Rather, it is an obelisk. It is a gold, shining, gleaming obelisk, much like the Washington Monument with perhaps a statue of Nebuchadnezzar perched on the very top. You can't help but notice when you read the story how often music is (laughs) emphasized in this text. It's almost as if he creates a music festival, a summer concert series, a, a, a carnival, a, a great you know, shindig, a Fourth of July kind of, um, you know, what is it? What do we call it on, on PBS? A Capital Fourth. Well, they create their own Capital Fourth devoted to the pride of the nation. In fact, one scholar suggests it's possible all of the musical traditions of the different groups of his empire would take turns coming up on stage, displaying the, their heritage of their region. And you'd have this like great melting pot of cultures all coming together to celebrate in one act of civic pride the glory of Babylon. One king, one empire, one good old-fashioned totalitarian regime dressed up in a multicultural experience. Sure, some citizens will lose some of their civil rights and some of their freedoms, but of course, it's always justified for a higher good. We, uh, we have to conform for the good of national unity and most importantly, national stability. Well, what then do you call the people who fail to comply? I think you call them national heretics. By refusing to bring worship and tribute to the idols of the nation. This is the key. By refusing to bring worship and tribute to the, to the national idols, they are national heretics. 
And what do you do with a heretic? But burn them at the stake. So these heretics can be sacrificed to the gods in this grand altar fire that they have conveniently located there at the, at the ceremonies in the form of a fiery furnace. Funny how history repeats itself. The second century, the Roman emperor towering intellect that he was, Marcus Aurelius, he hated the Christian church and persecuted Christians, not because of their faith. No, no. It was because of their blasphemy. That was actually the word that he used. Blasphemy. See, Christians' refusal to honor Rome's traditional gods and their refusal to burn a pinch of incense and proclaim that Caesar is Lord made them national heretics. Disloyal, unfaithful, dangerous, and blasphemous. Because blasphemous citizens is what they were um, when it was all said and done. You know, you find something similar in Islamic countries today. While they don't require Christians in, say, Pakistan or Malaysia or um, Uzbekistan. Christian citizens are not required to worship Allah, but... Uh, their civil rights and their religious freedoms continually are, are constricted. They lose more and more and more, it seems like, every year. They make it very, very difficult for Christians to operate according to their religious convictions. And they don't view Christians as loyal, faithful citizens of Pakistan and Malaysia. Rather, they're a threat to a stable society. I mean, this is also true in China. We, uh, we heard a story just uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, China has been cracking down on non-governmental churches. In fact, they, uh, they raided a school, much like this one, and raided a church just a couple of weeks ago, imprisoning the pastor and the schoolmaster, etc. Um, again, it's, it's, there's a pressure to conform to the totalitarian ideology and the regime, be it in Turkey or Saudi Arabia or, or China. There's, just, there's always this pressure to bow down in any nation, to bow down to the national idols. So what do you think our national idols are? What are the idols of the United States of America? Well, I would argue that our nation has become almost religiously committed to the idol of sex. We are almost religious about the need for everyone's sexual preferences to be embraced and affirmed by everyone else. And we as Christians, if we're being honest, feel tremendous pressure to conform to that idol. If you, I mean, come on, if you believe in binary gender and heterosexual marriage today, that's actually, it's, it's almost a heretical doctrine in America if you hold to the Bibles and the historic church's teaching that God's design is one man and one woman in lifelong monogamy, well, what you find is it's almost blasphemous in our society. That's not to say that sex is the only American idol. We idolize money and power every bit as much. I think one of the major reasons why parents are so caught up in their kids' grades, and any teacher will tell you this is the case, why they're so caught up in their kids' grades so that their kids can get into their dream college. You know, the whole dream college thing, that's probably just a coalescence of American idolization of power and money. But we do it, you know, in a way that, uh, I, I guess it's just commonly accepted. What we've got to realize, friends, is that for most Christians, 
throughout most of history and most of the world, they're accustomed to a Christian life that always takes heat. They have always lived under state pressure. That's the only life that they know, a life that threatens marginalization if you don't bow down to the national idols and sanctions. Um, The American church, I think, is having a hard time coming to terms with the fact that life in America for the 21st century is going to be full of a lot of heat, at least if you're a biblical Christian. But this is what should be expected. I think really the question to ask is, can a Christian be faithful without being a national heretic? Can you live a truly faithful Christian life in whatever nation you are located throughout the world without blaspheming some of the idols of the state? Well, enough on that. Let's look at some of the highlights from the passage. Three of them I want to point out to you. Number one, we notice first and foremost, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't go looking for a fight They weren't looking for a fight, but they were ready for a fight when it came. They were looking for a fight. The Sunday school flannel graphs we were shown as kids that depicted three men standing tall while everyone else is prostrate on the ground, kind of like Muslims at prayer. You you know the image that I'm talking about. That that Sunday school image is, is almost certainly mistaken. Did you notice the text? It hints, strongly hints at the fact that they simply weren't there. They did not attend the festival. They were persona non grata, and they were snitched out by a group of jealous bureaucrats. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, this is exactly what happens three chapters later in Daniel chapter 6, when the king decrees that you're no longer to pray to any god but himself. Daniel defies that order by quietly going into his house, closing the door, and beginning to pray. And he gets snitched out by a bunch of jealous bureaucrats. (laughs) You know, another way to think of it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they kind of get sued. This is a bit of a lawsuit. These Babylonian officials, in essence, bring a lawsuit against them to the executive branch. And in a very quick order of the court, uh, the court rules against these three Jewish men. And then there are the accompanying state-sanctioned punishments that come by losing in court. I just think it's funny that that's how the world worked 2,600 years ago. Lawyers were still in charge then, as they are today. And you get sued when uh, when you defy the state. But all signs in the story, I thought the lawyer joke was funnier, by the way. All signs in the story indicate that... They were quiet, they were polite, they were non-obtrusive. They just didn't show up for the festival. And when they did show up, now there's this a small detail here I've, I've never seen before. I found it uh, amazing. When they're brought before the king in verse 21, if you look there, what kind of clothes are they wearing when they're brought before the king? It says they're wearing robes, trousers, and turbans. Have you ever seen a Jewish man wear a turban before? That's not Jewish clothing. (laughs) That's Babylonian clothing. You see what's going on here? They're trying to fit in. Really, they're, they're trying 
to fit in. They've taken Babylonian names. They're wearing Babylonian clothing. They're serving in a Babylonian administration. They are trying to fulfill what we talked about in the first sermon in the series, trying to fulfill Jeremiah 29, assimilating and seeking the common good of the society. They're trying while still living true to their religious convictions. You know, they don't wear the Yahweh is our God protest t-shirts. Um, they don't go looking for a fight, but they're ready for one when it comes. And I would say wherever the church is located in this world, whatever nation she is located in, she must be prepared to face the heat. Uh, the church is not looking for trouble, but she must stand fast when trouble comes. Number two, what a remarkable reply they give to the king in verses 17 and 18. Will you look at it with me? Verse 17. <clears throat> if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The God we serve is able to deliver us. They believe in the power of God. They even think that God probably will deliver them. But if not, see, they also acknowledge the freedom of God. See, God is free to do as he sees is best. If not, there is an if not, if God is free. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard from other people who their story follows a similar pattern. It's the whole, yeah, I used to trust in God. I had a close relationship with God. But then I asked him for some really important things and God didn't come through for me. You know, he kind of let me down. So now I don't believe in God anymore. Ever heard that story before? Well, that's the story of you married him for his money. You know, you loved him. And you trusted in him and you were close to him because of what you got out of him. And when he didn't give you this circumstantial outcome you were looking for, you bailed. But these guys, they fully affirm the freedom of God. They say, God can do this or God can do that. Uh, but I will love him and serve him just because I love him and I serve him. Whatever he gives me today, it doesn't matter if it's riches or poverty, good or bad. I will love him just because I love him. Because I love the giver more than the gifts themselves. What's obviously the most important for these three men is not personal deliverance, but personal obedience. And that's what the narrative says repeatedly. The verb for worship in this passage occurs 11 times in the chapter, verses, in verse 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, twice in 15, 18, and 28. And then there's another verb closely connected to the verb for worship, the verb serve, as in to serve a deity. That occurs five times in verses 12, 14, 17, 18, 28. A total of 16 uses of the verbs to worship hammers the point home. What really matters is not getting the circumstantial outcome we desire, what really matters is worshipful obedience. Yeah, is, 
Is that what really matters to most Christians today? Is that really what matters to you? These three men give us a full balanced picture of real faith. Faith knows the power of God. Faith cherishes the freedom of God. Faith leads to obedience of God. Power, freedom, obedience. He is able, but if not, we will still worship him. Thirdly and finally, the best part of this passage is the fourth figure walking in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you want to flip back to the front cover of your bulletin, I thought this was a very interesting image that is taken uh, from one of the catacombs in Rome. You know, many of the catacombs, they would include pictures of biblical scenes. And so here we have, dating back to the third century, same time as Marcus Aurelius, interestingly enough, uh, the uh, Priscilla catacombs have the three men in the fiery furnace. I love everything about this picture except for the bird. (laughs) I think the bird is supposed to be an angel, but it really misses the point, doesn't it? Because when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, he doesn't see an angel flying around like a dove. He sees, he sees a human-like figure, somebody full with an aura of majesty and glory about them. He says in verse 28, uh, he looks like a son of the gods. It must be God's angel. In the Old Testament, there's a particular figure that keeps showing up again and again called the angel of the Lord. Peter Lightheart did a great job talking to us, I think it was last Friday night, on how the angel of the Lord is a figure, uh, demonstrates to us the plurality of God in the Old Testament. That there seemed to be more than one person of God. There's Yahweh and there's the angel of the, of the Lord in the burning bush. It says the angel of the Lord went into the bush and it caught fire and then God spoke from the bush. But whose voice was coming out of the bush? It says it was the voice of the Lord. Or was it the voice of the angel? We're not quite sure. See, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he talks a whole whole lot like God and he receives worship much like God. You say, well, who is this guy? Well, we know who the guy is. It's the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus that walks with them. I know you're shocked to hear me say that. (laughs) But it is Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, who, who looks like a sons of the gods. Even a pagan king can recognize his glory. This is Jesus before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And we see such a great picture of his ministry here. Verse 29 Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the ordeal, he summarizes it in verse 29 this way. He says, no other God can save in this way. He spoke much wiser and better than he even realized. Why didn't God reach into the fiery furnace and drag Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego out? Because he didn't. How did he save them? He went into the fire himself. No other God saves this way. Why did he walk around there in the furnace of suffering? It's an indicator of what the Bible tells us. Only the God of the Bible goes into the fire and endures the sufferings of this world. It's a picture of what the second person of the Trinity would do for us 
on the cross. The final thing we note is the wonderful, simple fact that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffer, they don't suffer alone. They're not suffering alone. See, Daniel 3 is a marvelous, beautiful depiction of Isaiah 43. Remember that passage? That when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And that is what God promises to everybody who belongs to him. When you walk through the furnace, I'll be there. You can feel him there. You can feel the presence of Jesus there. You know what else you might feel? Verse 25. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. The fire didn't harm them. The fire burned away their bonds so they weren't tied up anymore. What you might actually feel is liberty in the furnace, in the fire. I know it seems like a strange place to experience, to think of experiencing spiritual liberty in the crucible and fire of of suffering. But that, in fact, has been many of our experiences. Some of us would say, I've never known in all my life a time where I felt more alive to God, more free and unbound than when I was suffering greatly. Because he was with me and my my chains fell off, my ropes were burned, and I was free. In the year 1555, the Bishop of London was Nicholas Ridley, and the Bishop of Worcester was Hugh Latimer. They shared a prison cell in the Tower of London. They were there by order of Queen Mary, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, whose intent was to return the Anglican Church back to Roman Catholicism. When Nicholas Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth, Peter confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Ridley said that he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory and not the glory of God. And I'm not using this story to pick on Roman Catholics uh, There were plenty of awful instances the other way around. Um, They were moved to Oxford and taken to their place of execution. And at that point, the inquisitors said, Mr. Ridley, if you will revoke your erroneous opinions, you shall not only have liberty, so to do, but also receive your life. It was a life and death offer to which he replied famously, so long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Jesus Christ and his known truth. Would you say that? So long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Jesus Christ and his known truth. He goes on, God's will be done in me. The two men were chained to the stake. Gunpowder was hung around their neck. Then a sermon was preached directed at them, urging them to change their views. Uh, Finally, Uh, Hugh Latimer uh, most famously responded with the words, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not delivered from the flames. You know, most Christians 
who have been put in those situations weren't. They burned. But they never burn alone. You never burn alone. Those men were not alone. Jesus Christ was with them, and they were not harmed. And you will not be harmed. In all of our trials, he will be with us. You can feel him there walking with you in the furnace. And you can know that just as through suffering, grace and glory came into his life, he will share that grace and glory with you uh, in yours and your trials. Amen.